In this episode of the OCR Underground Show, I'm going to talk all about my new book coming out. I'm also going to get into what a B-race is. I'll discuss some research on how you can't always rely on how you feel to determine how effective a workout is. And I'm going to give you some key points on how to improve your sleep. Welcome to the OCR Underground Show. Each week, you get the latest research, training secrets of top coaches, and everything you need to crush your next obstacle course race and finish burpee-free. Here's your host, SGX coach, Mike Diebler. Hey everyone, Coach Mike here. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 77 of the OCR Underground Show. If you want to check out the show notes for today's episode, head on over to ocrunderground.com slash episode 77. And while you're there, I actually have a free gift for you that I'd love for you to check out. One, um, one thing I know everybody has questions on is how to improve your grip. And obviously there's a lot of different ways you can do it. So I put together a free three-part video series on some of my favorite strategies for improving your grip, not just exercises, but some other key things you should consider when implementing some grip training and, and how to implement it into your training program. So you can head on over to the show notes and um, sign up for that free video series. You can also find the link in my Instagram profile, which is at OCR Underground. I also want to let you know about the sponsors for today's episode. Um, I want to talk about Venga CBD. Venga CBD is not like most CBD companies who just create a bunch of products and hope you know how to use them. They've actually created a system versus just creating products. So they keep it simple. They have four products that are going to cover anything you would need that involves CBD. So no guesswork. They just have a, a straightforward system that you can use. Uh, each product is specifically made to support an area for endurance training, which is why I love talking about this company so much and why I wanted to partner with them. Uh, you get to save a whopping 30% off and get free shipping when you buy the Venga Endurance System versus buying each product separately. So this is an incredible deal. I love using their products and it really has become a staple in my training and my recovery. So if you want to check out their products and their bundle, head on over to vengacbd.com slash slash OCR underground and save big. And I also wanted to tell you about Handmaster Plus. I mentioned uh, my free gift to you is uh, a three-part video series on grip training. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about Handmaster Plus. So obviously there's a lot of different uh, grip training tools. I love the, the Handmaster Plus uh, grip trainer. It's just such a simple thing I can take with me anywhere, whether I'm traveling, you know, on a plane, uh, at a hotel, in the gym, in my office, wherever it might be. So the cool thing about this is it's not just about that crushing and squeezing grip. Um, using the bands that are going that are laced through the ball, we can actually train the muscles that open the grip as well, creating better muscular balance uh, with the hand and the wrist, which is overall going to get you to have a much more solid grip. So I think this is a, a great product, great tool. You can check it out at handmasterplus.com to learn more. All right, well, I feel like I just have a million things that we're going to be talking about in this episode, so I kind of want to jump right in, and really just that I'm super excited. I, at the time of recording this at least, I am preparing for the Spartan race out in Vegas or Arizona, and uh, really excited, you know, obviously it's been just a crazy year for all of us, to so to finally have something 
you know, so close. Uh, I'm just, I'm just super excited. So I know some of you have probably already gotten to race, which is awesome. I've, I've heard everything's going smoothly. So I'm excited to see how that continues with, with Spartan races and, um, yeah, just kind of see, see how it goes. So I'm excited that the next episode, I'll actually get to talk a little bit about a recap and let you know, if you haven't gotten a race yet, any new protocol procedures, just kind of give you an inside look at how everything goes from what I've seen, doesn't look like any new obstacles, but um, which is unfortunate. But at least we can we can get back to racing, which is is going to be great. So looking forward to that. Um, I also wanted to talk about my book. Uh, so Fuel and Fire: uh, Dominate Obstacle Course Race Racing with Scientific Strategies Fueled by Nutrition. So I, this has been a project of mine over the last few years. It's super cool that I have a copy of, in my hand right now. And um, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about it and let you know where you can find it. But really what I wanted to accomplish with this book is, you know, I, I talk a lot about all different race strategy, you know, training strategy for specifically for OCR on the podcast. But I know it's sometimes hard to, to listen and put things into practice. And, and that's really what I wanted to create is a, a simple guide to help somebody train now it's it's not a beginner's guide it's for somebody who has been training already has been racing a little bit and you know similar to the audience of this podcast I, I believe is those that are really looking for that advantage you know they've already done kind of the the start you know they've, they've raced a few times they've, they've been training consistently but now it's about planning and really the the whole idea behind fuel and fire was i've seen relatively few books out there that really talk both nutrition and training. Now, I will admit it's definitely geared uh, heavier on the training side because there was so much information there, but I couldn't talk about the training without talking about the nutrition. So that was the goal is to really teach the reader how, one, you need to be doing very specific training and every training day is not always the same, right? We have different goals. We need strength, endurance, all these different things. Uh, so we have training days specifically based for that, but your fueling should represent that, right? And I always look at it, look at it this way. If you, whatever you're training for, if you had a super hard training day, you kind of crushed it in the gym, out on a run, whatever it might've been, um, think about how you might want to fuel to support that type of day. And then you had another day where you didn't do anything. You're stuck at work all day, sitting in traffic and you just couldn't get to the gym, or maybe it was a planned day off. And you were just sitting down, maybe walking around, but not not a whole lot of activity there. Think about how you would need to feel for that, right? They're totally different. And a lot of times when we hear nutrition, it's very general and it's very consistent, right? Where, hey, you need to consume 2,500 calories per day, this much fat, this much carb, this much protein, and just do that. Um, and while that might work for some people, I think we can do better if we're a little bit more um, strategic with our training and our nutrition and really seeing how some days require certain types of foods, more calories, less calories. So that's that's what I want to do is is share all the different styles and types of training that you can implement when working towards uh, improving your obstacle course racing and how you can support that training with with your nutrition. So I talk about different research I've talked about on the podcast plus some other ones and really lay out a, a what I think is a pretty practical guide step-by-step -step process on how you incorporate your running how you use heart rate training how you 
um, you know, what all the different components that should be included in your strength training, what your nutrition breakdown should look like. And then, you know, mental training. I, I couldn't, I almost didn't include that in the book and I talk about that in there, but I had to really focus on, um, or I, I felt that it was something that I needed to add in there and, and talk about different mental training strategies and mental toughness. Um, and then recovery. And obviously if you listen to this podcast, you know how big I am into recovery. So I talk about some of my big strategies and, and, you know, really getting the essentials down before we do anything crazy. So, uh, that's all in there. Plus, uh, I give you a great starter plan to work with, to really implement all of these things. Uh, plus there's a website that goes with the book so you can see all the different exercises. Um, sometimes it's hard to see exactly what's going on in a picture. So I wanted to make sure you had videos as well. So, uh, that's all in there. Again, the book is called Fuel and Fire. Uh, love it if you'd be able to, to check it out. You can find it on Amazon. Probably the easiest way to do, do it. Just search for Fuel and Fire and that should pop up on there. If you do get it on Amazon, I would absolutely be incredibly grateful for a review. If you love the book, um, that, would be, that would be just awesome. Uh, so I will also put a link in the show notes where you can get it through Amazon or through the publisher as well. Honestly, I can't remember which one is, is a better price, but I do believe one of them is better than the other, so you can, you can check on there and, uh, and pick up a copy. All right, well, let's get into Inside Mike's Mind segment, and I wanted to talk about a B-race, and really not just a B-race, but in the previous episode, and I've talked about it a few times on this this show, and you may have heard it in other places too, and this idea of A, ba- a races versus B versus C, or however you want to lay it out. And I mentioned last last time, you know, I love marking out. I use the Venga CBD annual calendar to really plan out my year. One, what are all the races that I want to do? And then within there, what's my A race? What's my B? What's my C? And, and so forth. And I look at it as A are the ones that I want to lay it all out there. I, if I'm going to podium, if I'm, I just want to do the best I possibly can, that's my A race. I try not to pick more like really one or two A races per year. Um, my B races are really more, um, I obviously I want to do well, but I am not as concerned with, with the outcome of those, you know, they're secondary to my A races. And then my C races are going to be more just for fun. Um, or training tools, things like that. So I was talking with a client and he was kind of giving me a hard time with, you know, I don't, I don't understand this. If I'm going to pay money to do a race, you know, you better believe I'm going to go hard and I'm going to try and win or, or, you know, do the best I can. And I, you know, that was a great point. And I thought it would be worthwhile to talk about a little bit because um, that's not exactly what it means, right? So I, any client I work with, I want you to do awesome at every single race that you are. And myself, I am going to push hard at every race, unless maybe I'm running with clients, doing it for fun, and I really could care less how, how I do. But let's just say, you know, it's, uh, it is going to be a competition and I'm going to push hard. Um, just because it's a B race doesn't mean that I'm not going to do my best and try and push hard. And, and if I can win it, I'm going to win it. I'm not going to back off and and let somebody beat me, right? So that's that's not the idea. Really how, and I think that this is the best way to clarify what it actually means to be an A race or a B race. It's more to do with your training than the race. And I think that that might be where the confusion is. So my A race 
is how I design my program. So when I'm working with a client, that's what I want. I, the information I want to know is, you know, is this an A race? You know, what what is the most important race for you this year or two or three races, whatever it might be? That's what I want to know because that's how I'm going to design the program based on that, right? It's just like, think about the Olympics, right? So if, if you're training, that's every four years, if you're training for the Olympics, you need a very specific plan. So you peak out the absolute best you possibly could at that event in four years. So yes, you're going to have other meets. There'll be world championships. There'll be, you know, uh, local events, all, all these different things that you're still competing in and you're trying to win all of those, but your training is going to be most influenced by that a race. And that's really what I mean. So if you tell me that you're training for, uh, the ultra in Tahoe for the Spartan race, um, and that's the main race that you want to train for, that's, what that's the information I'm going to use to set up our long plan. Say we're going to work together for six months. So I have six months to get you ready for that race, but you're going to be doing like four other races in there. So I need to look at those other races and see, okay, which ones are B, which are C, like which ones do you not really care at all? You're just going to have fun, run with a friend, you know, no stress, not, not a big deal at all. Which ones are, are, are important, but just, it's not the A race. It's not the one that you want, you know, you want to do the best at. So once I know that, now I can organize your plan. So my the mileage that I recommend for you, you know, our training progressions, everything is going to be based off your A race with all the other races just being secondary. So let's say a super comes up and it's 2 months or a month, you know, before your ultra. That I'm going to take that as we're going to use this as a training tool. I'm not going to all of a sudden you're a month away from your A race and you're going to be running a 10K uh, to change up your running program to peak for that 10K, right? Because think about it that way. What would your running program look like for an ultra versus a 10K, right? It's going to be totally different, right? Sure, there's some similarities in there, um, but it's completely different, right? How many miles do you really need to run in a training session for a 10k like nothing that crazy um, but if we're doing ultra that's one of our main goals is, is getting a lot of mileage in there so that's what i want you to think of more of when when you when you lay out your a race b race c race um, it's more thinking how is my training going to change based on each race my effort is going to be that 100 percent in any race that you do right so if it's a b race and if my if it's my client's b race i want you to win Right. I, I want you to go out there. Right. I have a client right now who training for an ultra in May and is racing in, in Vegas. Right. So our mileage is all based on that race in May, that ultra. And we're going to still race. And, you know, he still wants to do well. And, and if he can win it, he's going to try and win it. Um, but I kept that in mind with the training plan is I'm not all of a sudden going to ditch all the, the planning that we had because of this this one B race that came up. So hopefully that makes sense and kind of clears up the difference between an A race and a B race. So you're always obviously trying to do is the best you can, right? B, B races are, are still competitive. It's, I, I call the C races more like, you know, you don't care. It's, it's purely fun. You know, no, you, you don't even have to look at the results afterwards. It's just not, not important. But your B race, you are absolutely still looking to, to do well. I just won't change up your program based on that B race because we, we want to peak for your A race. So 
hopefully you that makes sense and kind of clears that up if you haven't yet you know start looking at the calendar you know now that these races are starting up and and do you have that a race if you do that's just how you're going to start to plan your your program around right your workouts are all working towards that event the other races are going to pop up you're still it's like you know if I'm training for an ultra, I'm still running, right? I'm still going to be fine for a 10K. Maybe my speed isn't what it used to be. That's okay. But I'm, I'm still ready for a 10K. It's just um, going about it a little bit differently, right? So so plan out that year. And then um, as we see more and more races, hopefully it'll, it'll make more sense. But if worst case, you have something to uh, go off of for next year. Well, let's talk about some research and this one's a little different so you're gonna have to hear me out on this one but in this uh, study researchers wanted to compare energy expenditure and ratings of perceived exertion on circuit training versus running so I'll, I'm gonna explain why, why this is important but that's essentially what they wanted to do they want to look at okay if we match uh, a, a circuit training session so, you know, and I'll get into the details, but basically resistance training in a circuit fashion and of equal intensity running on a treadmill, they wanted to see, do you burn the same number of calories and do you feel like they are both as hard? So that's the energy expenditure and the rating of perceived exertion. So uh, in this study, they took a group of college age men and they, the same subjects did both protocols. So they started with the circuit training. So all of the subjects were experienced lifters and runners. And what they had them do was they went through 10 stations, uh, total body workout. They had them do exercises, 15 reps using 40% of their one rep max. And they did this for 20 minutes. So uh, they were, you know, going to close to failure with that 40%, um, 15 reps. And during that entire time, they monitored heart rate, uh, they monitored uh, energy expenditure, and they monitored their rating of perceived exertion. So periodically, they'd ask them, well, how hard is this on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being hard as you possibly could go, and 1 being pretty much nothing. Where do you feel you are? All right, so they, they collected all of that data uh, after their 20-minute resistance training session. Then... Uh, they went back to the laboratory and they did a 20 minute run. And what they did, they again, they wanted to match this as best they could um, to, to compare them as closely as they could. So what they did was they took the average heart rate that, because remember they monitored heart rate through the resist, circuit training. Um, they had to run for 20 minutes on a treadmill at that average heart rate, right? So at least they know if we average the heart rates out, our intensities for 20 minutes are pretty much the same. We're just running in one uh, case and circuit training in the other. So, and then same thing. They Obviously they're monitoring heart rate, but they monitored ratings of perceived exertion. So again, how hard do you feel like you're going? And they measured energy expenditure. So here's what they found in the study. Energy expenditure, so think how many calories they burned, was significantly lower in the circuit training group. So it was 168 calories on average compared to 244. So pretty significant difference over 20 minutes. Um, and then the, um, the 
the rate of energy expenditure they also measured was basically every minute how much energy were you expending but it was significantly less in the circuit training group as well and the rating of perceived exertion so how hard they felt like they were going so a little bit more subjective there was significantly higher in the circuit training group so that was a six out of ten versus a four out of ten so why am i even talking about this and what does it all matter one of my pet peeves that i get with clients all the time is they go solely based on how they feel after a workout to determine if that was a good workout or not. Meaning if I'm not crushed, if I'm not super sore, the workout didn't matter or you know it didn't count because it just wasn't effective. And that would always bother me because it's not always the goal to be super sore, right? If you wanna get sore, I can think of a hundred things for you can do. You can do some yard work all day in my backyard and clean some stuff and move things around, I bet you're going to be sore. It's probably going to be in all the wrong places, but that shouldn't be the goal, right? And that's the mistake a lot of people make. The goal is to push yourself so hard you get sore the next day with no other purpose, right? Nothing nothing wrong with being sore, obviously within reason. Um, we don't want to be sore all the time, but I just never thought that was a good way to measure how effective a workout is. And that's that's kind of why I picked this study because I think a lot of people fall into that trap of, um, you know, how did I feel after a workout? Now, feeling gives us a lot of information, but it doesn't necessarily give us all the information. So if we look at the data from this study, so the circuit training group burned less calories, right? Their energy expenditure was lower, yet they felt like they were pushing harder. Right. So and remember, these were both experienced runners and lifters. So you can't make the argument that, well, maybe they don't lift and it just felt harder and they run like they they have been doing this regularly for a while. And they felt that this workout was harder uh, circuit training versus running. Yet the running felt easier and burned more calories. So I know not always is the goal just to burn more calories, but I just thought this was an interesting topic to bring up. We don't always know the whole picture, right? And we can't just base everything off of feel, right? So let's just say I am, my goal is I'm trying to lose some weight right now. And we might look at these two workouts. I have you do a 20 minute circuit training session and I have you do a 20 minute run session. And you're like, yeah, that circuit training was way harder. Um, you know, I, I definitely felt that that more, yet it burned less calories. So is, is that necessarily the best workout for you? Right. And obviously these are hard questions to answer. Right. OK, we can look at was there an epoch response right afterwards? You know, we don't know. They didn't look at this. All they looked at was within 20 minutes what happened. So, sure, there's other variables to consider. But I do think this is just an important mindset shift, if nothing else, that don't judge a workout necessarily on solely how you feel. And, you know, that goes both ways. So sometimes um people expect a workout to just crush them. And that's the whole point. And if they don't get that feeling, it's not effective. And realistically, I, I look at a lot of workouts. I want you to leave energized and feeling really good and moving better, you know, better than when you came in. And it may, maybe it burned more calories, maybe it didn't, but I think that's an important thing. So I'm not saying throw away feeling. It's just, we have to take in, take into account all these 
other variables. So, um, so really no, uh, no practical advice necessarily where I want you to change up your workout routine, really just more of a mindset thing where have a goal of your workout, what it's supposed to accomplish specifically for your body and, and remember, and I know I, I preach this a lot. It's not just about the workout. It's, it's about the, how that workout fits into the puzzle that you're trying to solve of a better performance. And that's the goal. Like you did a workout. Do you feel stronger? after that afterwards are you moving better you know maybe you're trying to work on recovery and mobility like what's what's the ultimate goal of your workout and do you feel like you're getting better and then sure yeah there's workouts that you should be pushing and you know testing yourself and and be, feel like you just um got got destroyed but that that can't be the only goal right that can't be the only purpose of your training think of the bigger purpose how does this workout fit into the, um, the big picture what you're trying to accomplish and just keep that in mind. So don't get frustrated if you're not sore after a workout or maybe you, you finished and you feel like it wasn't that hard of a workout. That's okay, right? It always beats the alternative. You didn't push so hard that you, you hurt yourself and you didn't do nothing, right? So we always wanna take these wins when we can get them and, and just keep all of that in mind with your training. All right, so this week we aren't going to have a guest uh, interview. I had just so much stuff that I wanted to make sure I got into this episode. I didn't want to turn into like a two-hour long podcast. So uh, you just get me today. We'll have another guest um, for our next episode. So I want to talk about one of the biggest recovery topics that we can talk about. And I, you know, I talked about my book already, but one of the first places I started in my book was on recovery because it's just I know it's not the the sexy topic you know it's not you know pushing hard and you know fancy recipes or whatever it is but it it puts everything together and that's why I talked about it first in my book and why I stress it so much because people just they skip over this thinking that eh, it's really not going to help me but you know the research and and anecdotal evidence just shows all the difference and it's Things that seem so simple that they can't they can't help, yet they have the biggest impact in your in your training, your lifestyle, performance, all all the above. So everything you literally everything you train for, we have to focus on recovery. And it's not just like not working out, right? That's you know, a piece could be like taking a break from training, but you can do things to boost your recovery, right? You train hard in the gym. You do things to push yourself. You could, you can do specific things to to enhance your recovery. Um, obviously, it's a little bit different. It's not just the harder you push, the better it is. But there are specific things that we can monitor. And one of the big things I talk about in my book, and I've talked about in the podcast, it's if anybody asks me what's the most important thing you should be doing for recovery, when I see these things posted online, really the only, not the only answer, but the number one answer has to be sleep. I I think sleep. I, I know sleep trumps everything else that you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about cold baths and um, compression gear and, and all these other things. You know, sleep blows them all out of the water, um, yet it's not something that we really focus on and, and train ourselves to get better at. We kind of skip over it. If you're a poor sleeper, you might just think you're doomed and you're not going to get a good night's sleep or you have to rely on drugs or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of things you can do. And... I think we put so much effort into other areas of our training, so little effort into things like this. And if you 
try it as hard as you did with your training with things like sleep or nutrition, I think we would see dramatic improvements in, in performance. So that's what I wanted to do today is not just, I mean, I can sit here and tell you about sleep, right? I, I, I'm sure you already know. We know all of the bad things that can happen when you're sleep deprived from poor performance to um, uh, poor immunity to, um, you know, decision-making, coordination, you know, anything that has to do with performance is going to decrease. Uh, we, are, we see an increase in obesity related to sleep deprivation and um, certain, you know, like carbohydrate metabolism impairments. We see earlier uh, mortality rates when you're sleep deprived and earlier onset, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, things like that. Sleep is so important. Sleep's kind of just like this weird thing that you just like, you, you go away for a while and then you come back. Um, but so many magical things happen. Um, I once heard the analogy, it's kind of like our brain. It's basically like the dishwasher running at night, cleaning everything up. And then when we wake up, we're, you know, in such a better position than when we went to sleep, assuming we get good quality and efficient sleep. So I think it's clear. We know it's important. What I really want to talk about is since it's so important, since it's one of the best ways that you can speed up and enhance your recovery, um, really focus on what, what are specific things you can do to help with sleep? Because that's where we get in trouble. I, I don't think people argue that they, well, maybe they do. If, if, if I hear somebody talk about, well, I just don't need sleep. You know, I can function on a few hours of sleep a night. You know, I'll totally call BS on that. Like, you may function, but I guarantee it's not optimally, right? I don't care who's saying it. You'll get away with it for a little while, and then you're going to burn out and, and have some serious problems. So anyone that says they can get by on little sleep really has no idea what they're talking about with, with this topic. Like, sure, we're all different, and is, it, is eight hours magical? Probably not. It's probably a good estimate. Um, but, you know, if you can function on four hours, imagine how much better you would be when you got full sleep and deep sleep and, um, you know, just more efficient with that. So that's that's the key. And I want to leave I want you to leave here with some really good practical things that you can do to help improve your, your quality of sleep. So. You know, obviously I'm not a doctor and I'm not prescribing anything, but I think there are simple things that you can do that make it more likely that you can fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. And that's that's really the key here. Now, the, the number one question you have to ask yourself, and this, you know, I once heard from um, a friend and colleague, Brandon Marcello, who would basically say, you know, why aren't you sleeping in the first place? Like that's that has to be our number one thing we answer because our solution will be dramatically different depending on what that answer is. So for example, if I am not sleeping because our neighbors are partying or I'm not sleeping because my knee hurts, obviously the solution is two different things, right? So we have to first, and I know this might seem super obvious, but you have to know what's contributing to your sleep problems to begin with. So I'm going to talk about some things that will make it you know, more likely that you fall asleep faster and then you get better sleep. But if you don't answer those questions and figure out the underlying reason why you're staying awake, it makes all these things harder to implement, right? I need to know, well, if it's my knee hurting, I need to figure out how to get my knee out of pain so I can sleep better. So I have to take care of my knee before I can take care of sleep. Um, not that any, trying any of these things that we're going to talk about won't help, but really, you got to take care of that knee. You got to take care of the noisy neighbors. 
uh, whatever it is. So some of the things might be more practical based on the, the answer specifically for you to that question. So the first thing I want to talk about is nutrition. I'm going to spend a lot of time or a lot of this portion talking about nutrition because I think there's a lot of things to consider. And obviously I'm not going to cover every little thing with, with nutrition, but some of the big rocks that we can pay attention to. So, you know, obviously sleep is a complex thing and many factors are going to influence sleep. But one thing that will influence the sleep-wake cycle will be certain neurotransmitters. So like serotonin, melatonin, GABA, we, we have um, different, you know, neurotransmitters that are going to influence our, you know, getting us to sleep faster and helping us stay asleep. So anything we can do, and a lot of the things we're going to talk about are essentially trying to influence, you know, production or utilization of those neurotransmitters. So that's, that's what we're going to focus on. So starting with nutrition, what, what things can we do to influence um, you know, like melatonin, for example, without just simply taking melatonin. And I think uh, one place we should start is carbohydrates. And this is where a lot of people get in trouble because, you know, carbs have been deemed the enemy and cause all these problems and obesity and, you know, whatever. So we've, you know, totally thrown away carbs because we think all carbs are bad and don't realize the the dramatic impact that has and how our body functions. So carbohydrates are going to be critical for helping us sleep. Now, there are obviously um, exceptions and outliers and people that will do great on a ketogenic diet and things like that. And obviously the brain can run on ketones as well. Um, but when we have people that are just not quite in ketosis, they're not really super low carbohydrate, they're just a little bit low and it's not allowing their body to fully adapt to a ketogenic diet um, or ketosis, but they're still, so they're kind of in that no man's land where they're, they're still eating carbohydrates, but really just not enough to go either way. Not, not really low carb for the keto diet, not, uh, and not high enough for optimal uh, carbohydrate utilization. So they're kind of stuck in the middle and that can cause, cause some problems specifically with, with sleep. So, Carbohydrates, carbohydrate consumption actually can increase plasma levels of tryptophan. So we're going to talk about tryptophan a lot. And you've probably heard of tryptophan before, an amino acid that, you know, one of the foods that's high, uh, that's high in tryptophan is turkey. So, you know, one of the reasons they'll say feeling sleepy uh, after Thanksgiving dinner is the tryptophan. It's probably because you're gorging yourself on all this other food and you just can't move. But sure, you know, turkey is going to be high in, in tryptophan. But... <clears throat> carbohydrate actually helps us utilize that tryptophan because when we eat carbohydrates, we're going to increase insulin levels, which will help get the tryptophan uh, across the blood brain barrier into our brain so we can actually utilize it. So one interesting thing, consuming uh, so protein rich meals with carbohydrates, specifically high glycemic index carbohydrates can dramatically increase tryptophan levels and help it get into the brain where we need it to to help us sleep and that's you know we hear that word high glycemic and most people associate with bad and it could be right it, you know a lot of bad foods you know just donuts and baked goods and you know refined carbohydrates are going to be often high glycemic index uh, but not all right the fruits and vegetables can be high glycemic as well so don't get caught up on that 
the right there's plenty of really good nutritious foods that we can eat that are high glycemic but research has shown that that having consuming a high glycemic meal uh, especially in the evening and there's another thing that a lot of people are going to have a hard time with like they they one think carbohydrates are bad and then eating carbohydrates at night is like really really bad but this could actually dramatically improve your sleep if you start doing it and a lot of people uh, myself included i consume most of my carbohydrates in the evening versus the morning i'm not telling saying that's the only way to do it but if you're having sleep issues this might be something you want to consider so for example one study looked at consuming high glycemic uh, a high glycemic meal four hours before sleep and how that influenced um improved sleep and specifically it reduced sleep latency meaning you went to sleep faster and you stayed asleep longer um, when they compared a high glycemic meal to a low glycemic meal both four hours before bedtime and they also compared a high glycemic meal within one hour of bedtime and they found that four hours before bedtime high glycemic meal was the most effective for uh, improving sleep so yes there's a point where we don't want to eat too late that, that could actually backfire right we eat and then we lay down we can have some digestive issues now too so a good kind of recommendation four hours before bed probably when you're eating dinner um, if possible high glycemic meal with protein uh, rich foods is going to be a great way to help increase you know utilization of tryptophan and um, helping us fall asleep better so if you're somebody who thought eating carbohydrates was bad at night um, play around with this and see if hey if you switch it out maybe go lower carbohydrate in the morning higher carbohydrate in the evening and see if this helps you um, with some of your sleep okay the next piece of nutrition I want to talk about is um, another area that some people might have an issue with, but it's cow's milk and how cow's milk can increase melatonin levels. So melatonin, um, I've already talked about a little bit, but we, we commonly see, you know, taking melatonin supplements to help with sleep. And, you know, sometimes this is necessary. Sometimes you might need that extra help there. But we want to keep in mind, this is not something we want to be reliant on. You know, is, is too much melatonin going to downregulate um your own melatonin production and secretion is it going to just make you too overly reliant on it in order to fall asleep so it's something occasionally might be helpful we don't want to be taking these straight melatonin supplements all the time especially when we can get it more more naturally we can see levels increase so um we can uh, we see an increase in both tryptophan and melatonin in um with the consumption of cow's milk and in particular, when we consume cow's milk at night. So again, another thing that many people probably think is something you shouldn't be doing, but may actually help with your sleep. And you know, this is probably something that you've done before. Um, you know, maybe when you were a kid, but that cup of warm milk at night. Um, there's there's something to that, right? So there's. Um, you know the next part part i want to talk about so these kind of relate together is is getting you know protein rich foods like tryptophan and that i think is you know then then obviously it's, it's the next piece we're going to be talking about but tryptophan we get that amino acid into the blood it's going to help produce serotonin serotonin is going to help produce melatonin so we have this um this pathway that we're trying to get to melatonin so if we increase tryptophan we'll increase serotonin we'll increase uh, melatonin so 
uh, consumption of cow's milk at night with, you know, your carbohydrate meal uh, with tryptophan, all these things might be really critical for you to improve, improve your sleep. So uh, going right into tryptophan. So um, consuming foods that are high in this amino acid and number one on the list is going to be milk. Um, specifically, we're looking at whey protein here. So, you know, you couldn't take a supplement, you can just drink milk. Um, it's, but that's going to be um, really the highest naturally occurring place that we're going to see, see tryptophan. So we're going to uh, see increase in sleep efficiency, which is essentially the time you spend in bed and the time you spend asleep, right? You can spend eight hours in bed, but are you sleeping that whole time? We want as much time in bed to be sleep. That's your sleep efficiency. So um, consuming milk protein helps improve sleep efficiency and also improves sleep quality, at least a subjective score. So, you know, kind of asking how well do you think you slept? Um, studies will see that milk consumption increases both of these efficiency and quality, which is exactly what we're looking for. So um, bottom line is, you know, and I get it. Some people might have issues with cow's milk and they can't do it. And what about other milks is always the next question. Well, really, you know, specifically, it's looking at, at cow's milk. It's looking at the whey protein. Whey is better than casein in terms of this. So, um, you know, off the top of my head, I don't know all of the other milks and how they'll, they'll, um, they'll go here, but we can at least say sure for cow's milk. Uh, some other dietary sources that will be helpful here. So I mentioned milk. Turkey, we talked about chicken, fish, eggs. Um, if you're not eating meat and more vegetarian, uh, pumpkin seeds, beans, peanuts, leafy green vegetables are all going to be really staples that you want. So these are some of the foods that you want to be consuming at night with some of your high glycemic carbohydrates as well. Okay, moving on more nutrition. Antioxidants is, is an easy place to go to next. So, you know, typically antioxidants, we're talking about, you know, fighting free radicals and inflammation. Um, it's a great tool for exercise recovery, but um, increased inflammation is also going to affect sleep cycle as well. So it's just one of those things we want to make sure that we have our, um, our inflammation under control, especially if you are working out a lot, because obviously exercise is a stress and your body is constantly trying to fight it. Uh, so we need to make sure we're, we're getting our antioxidants in there. Um, specifically, vitamins E and C are going to be of importance here. Um, but, of, you know, all antioxidants are going to be helpful here. Uh, another one that we at least should, should bring up is uh, tart cherries, tart, ter tart cherry juice. Um, and this kind of combines both things that we've been talking about so far. So studies on melatonin, or excuse me, on tart cherry juice has found a significant increase in, or I'm sorry, a significant reduction in inflammation with a significant increase in melatonin levels. So we kind of get the boasted best worlds here. So this might be something else you can you can play around with, with uh, tart cherry juice. Uh, in this particular study, they were doing two servings a day of 30 milliliters. Um, so that, that amount seems to be helpful. I'm sure you can experiment with, with other levels as well. And just as a side note, um, they also found it to be incredibly helpful for the recovery with uh, ultra athletes. So ultra marathoners uh, speeding up their, their um, or reducing their inflammation so they can get back to, to training, better night's sleep, 
um, all that good stuff. So again, just a great way for recovery in general, tart cherry juice, not just, um, not, not just with uh, sleep. All right, and then just a couple more things with nutrition. Um, magnesium and zinc is another big one. I know there's a lot of products out there that either use magnesium or magnesium and zinc. I know one is Calm that um, is a magnesium powder that you can you can drink in the evening. Uh, ZMA, which is zinc and magnesium, is a, a popular supplement as well. But this combination seems to be pretty effective for enhancing melatonin levels again. And um, it also helps with uh, GABA, which GABA, it's like it's an agonist, the GABA, meaning it assists uh, what GABA does, which is essentially a... Uh, it desensitizes the central nervous system. So it kind of quiets down your, your central nervous system, which again is what we want uh, when we're going going to sleep. We don't want to um, be on high alert, you know, in a sympathetic state. We want to be parasympathetic and calm down. So GABA assists with that and magnesium and zinc seem to be helpful there. Um, and then the last thing I really want to mention is something to take out of your diet. And obviously that would be caffeine. Um, not necessarily have to eliminate your diet, but we've become so reliant on caffeine for a lot of things, uh, not just that morning cup of coffee, you know, it could be tea, coffee, pre-workout supplements, other supplements, you know, focus supplements, energy supplements, whatever it might be. So we're, we're getting these dosage, dosages of caffeine throughout the day. So obviously we have... Um, different people are affected differently by caffeine. You have high metabolizers and low metabolizers or fast and slow metabolizers. So some are going to consume that caffeine and it's in and out of their body pretty quickly. I'm, I'm one of those people. And I've seen, you know, through my 23andMe uh, genetic testing that, you know, I have those genetic variants where I metabolize coffee or caffeine very quickly. And I'm one that I could drink a cup of coffee and go right to bed right after. But other people, they have that cup of coffee and they're, they're wired for hours. So you need to know how you respond best. Um, but even if you're not wired and you're having issues sleeping, it's something that you're going to pay attention to. So I, I tend to be conservative. So really eight to 10 hours before bed, you know, preferably like 10, we're not consuming coffee or excuse me, caffeine at all. So just play it safe there. So those are just a few of the nutrition pieces that I think can be incredibly helpful. Uh, for improving your sleep quality. Now, uh, another piece, I talk about this more in my book too, but temperature is going to be a big thing. So, you know, our uh, circadian rhythm that we're, we're talking about, right, our sleep and wake cycles, you know, it, it all occurs in cycles. You know, our hormone levels are cycling. A lot of our bodily functions are cycling, um, not just for sleep cycle, but that's one of the big uh, sleep wake cycle, but that's one of the big things that we're focusing on. And um, our temperature, core temperature changes throughout the day, and we see it matched with our sleep-wake cycle. So we're, our core temperature increases upon waking and it decreases upon going to sleep. So setting up your environment, um, and that's really the main things we're going to talk about next, are, are setting up your environment for the best possible sleep. And I think cold is something that you can easily control with you know fans, air conditioner, windows, whatever it might be. But we definitely want cooler temperatures for when we go to bed to help um, help with sleep onset. You know, again, everybody's going to be different, but when you look at the research, you know, anywhere from 60 to 67 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere in that range tends to be uh, beneficial for cooling enough to, to get some sleep. 
Um, you can check out different products. I actually bought for my wife. She was having some issues with this. And um, we tried a, a chili pad, which is essentially a pad you put under your sheets and you can control the temperature that way, which is really cool because you can do the whole bed or you can do half the bed. And so if I'm fine, I don't, I don't have it, but it's on her side of the bed so she can cool it down or heat it up upon waking. So it makes it a little bit easier to get out of bed as well. So, um, that's, that could be an option as well, but you know, something to make it a little bit cooler. Uh, another thing controlling your environment is the, uh, lightness, you know, keeping it dark. And I, I know this is obvious and you've probably heard it before, but, um, light is going to interfere. And, and obviously some people are more sensitive than others, but whether this is sunlight or artificial light, you know, we have to pay attention to it. So if you're working like a night shift and you're sleeping during the day, this becomes a lot harder. Um, and we know there's a lot of issues with those that work on work, the, the night shift, and, um, they have higher risks of, of certain issues because of, of flipping their circadian rhythm, circadian rhythm. So, but even if you're not sleeping during the day, we want to make sure we keep it as dark as possible. So any of the artificial lights in your room, doing the best you can to cover them up. So, you know, TVs, you know, plugs, alarm clocks, whatever it is, just trying to keep it as dark. If you need to get like blackout shades to cover up the windows, um, all of these things, if it's very, very dark, it makes your body much, much easier to fall asleep. Um, you can even do things like getting blue blocking glasses, you know, that's become more and more popular where you get, you know, we think about going outside and protecting your eyes from the sun, but we don't think about, can we, you know, how should we protect our eyes from the little suns inside on our computer screens and phones and, and TVs? So you can, you can pick up blue light blocking glasses. So, you know, blue light's not bad, but especially that artificial blue light that we're getting from all these screens at night, it makes it a lot harder for our, our brains to, to turn off and get ready for sleep. So um, you, you can go as far as the blue blocking glasses, but I think if you're just smart about it, you, you don't even need to go that far. You can do things like putting um, certain programs on your computer, like f.lux, which will um, uh, eliminate the blue light on your screen, kind of makes it look like the screen's broken but that's something you can use or on, on most phones have like nightshade programs and you just flip that on at sunset. And then again, it reduces the, the blue light exposure there as well. But if you just follow the rule of, you know, no electronics, like two to four hours before you go to bed, you know, no t TVs, no phones, uh, you know, anything like that. Don't watch TV in bed. It's all these things could be interfering and making it harder and harder to sleep. So uh, I know that's a tough one for, for many people, but that can be incredibly helpful there. Um, moving on, another really big one is just a schedule. You have to be consistent. You're, you know, our bodies crave consistency. So if we can get on a schedule when you tend to go to bed around the same time every night and you tend to get up around the same time, uh, this can be really helpful. And this is another hard one, right? Because most people like to, uh, you know, they have to get up early during the week and they want to sleep in on the weekends. But if sleep is really disrupted, this is something that you really want to pay attention to. So yes, that means getting up the same time, whether it's a, a Monday or a, a Saturday. So obviously there's a little leeway and we have some flexibility, but if you're, you know, staying up till midnight on the weekends and going to bed at 10 during the week or nine, you know, we have a big uh, difference here. That's something that, that could actually cause problems. So do the best you can. Try and be as consistent 
with your your sleep schedule as possible you know set an alarm if if you need to to remind yourself it's time to wind down and and get to bed and then the last one that i wanted to bring up is the brain dump now when a lot of people can't sleep you know they wake up in the middle of the night or they just can't fall asleep one of the big complaints we hear is that there are a million things running through their mind whether it's you know one, it could be all the things they have to do or things they're stressing about or whatever it might be. So this this is a tough one, but I think a great place to start is the brain dump where you just sleep with a pad next to your bed. You When you wake up and you have those things ro- rolling through your head, just try and get them out of your head. Write them on a piece of paper. So if you're like thinking of all the things you have to do the next day, the more you think about those things, the, the less likely... Um, it'll it'll be that you're going to fall asleep anytime soon. So get them out of your head, and um, you know get them on the piece of paper. They're there. They'll be there in the morning, and then you can attack them or you know deal with it whenever you need to. But for the time being, we just have to get those thoughts out of your head, and that's going to lead to actually my last one. So kind of a bonus one now, which I think will help, and that's you know breath work. I I, I talk about a lot, but trying I think. And it's really not the breath work per se, but it's really about being present. And the more present you are in the moment, I think the more it's going to help you in this, you know, in lots of situations, but with sleep, you know, when you're having trouble sleeping, you're thinking about what had already happened during the day, maybe had a bad day and you're just having a hard time dealing with it or something you're gonna have to deal with the next day. And all these things are eating at you, but you're not thinking about laying there, just being present with the moment. And I think using breath work can come in really handy there so doing something like you know obviously we've heard of counting sheep before but more like counting your breath and focusing on really high quality breaths and every breath should be pretty long you know your breath should take like 10 to 15 seconds for one breath uh, trying to match that pace where it's you know like five or so seconds to inhale five to to seven seconds to exhale, you know, nice, slow, and just thinking about every breath, you know, almost like a form of meditation, like, you know, start counting backwards, you know, count backwards from, you know, 20, 30, something like that, because you you have to think about that, right? It's not as natural as, you know, just counting one, two, three, four. You, when you count backwards, you have to think and, and be present with it. So, um, so that's why we're gonna count backwards. And you're just gonna think, and this is, um, something I learned from Dana Santos, who does a, a ton of, of breath work. Um, and I, this always stuck with me where every breath is a number. So when you inhale, you're thinking about inhaling that number 20 or 30 or whatever number you're going to start with. And then you exhale that number. And then the next number 29, you inhale, you exhale. So it sounds a little weird, but you're just being mindful of that number and not thinking about anything else except for your breath and counting. And the hard part is, is if you notice all of a sudden you messed up, you skipped a number, you forgot where you are, you start over because it basically meant you started drifting. Your, your mind started to think about something else. So you're just training yourself to just really think about, think about that number, think about your breath, you know, be present, get all those other thoughts just out of your head right now. And then the idea is you're not going to make it to one because you're going to fall asleep before you hit there if you're really focusing on this. So I, I know that was a lot, but... These are, you know, some of the things that have just shown to be really helpful for improving sleep. And, you know, why I'm spending so much time on this, it's just a topic I think most people don't really pay attention to. They don't do anything really to help 
with their sleep. They may realize that sleep's important, but they don't really train themselves to get better. So, you know, look at what you're eating. You know, think about the carbohydrates and the proteins. Um, you know, how can we get more, you know, tryptophan, you know, getting milk, consuming foods at night that maybe you normally wouldn't because you thought they were bad, um, setting up your environment for more to more easily fall asleep and then obviously answering that first question of why aren't you sleeping in the first place um, so hopefully putting all these together you can start to utilize some of these things to really just get better at sleep because if you can get this down so many other things are going to be impacted right your training is going to get better you're more recovered you'll train harder you recover faster so you can train more often you'll feel better you're going to be more productive uh, you're healthier so, so it's it's kind of a no-brainer but it's just one of those things that nobody really does anything about so i'm giving you permission to start paying attention to it and see if you can mess with a few of these things and and see if it increases your sleep and how do you know if you're getting better sleep i mean you should just know should should feel better you can use things like uh, track trackers you know or ring um, i use the sleep cycle app uh, there's a million different things you can use to to track your sleep to at least see if if you see improvements there so give them a try i'd love to know how they're doing feel free to to reach out to me and and let me know but um that's that's your goal for for right now is how can you improve on your sleep all right that's it for episode 77 of the ocr underground show uh, i hope you guys picked up some good things that you can use right away to help out with your training uh, if you're going to be out in vegas um, and you see me around definitely say hi it's going to just be so great to uh to see some people and catch up and and just get out on that course again. Uh, big thanks to, again to uh, the sponsors of the show, Venga CBD. Again, check out vengacbd.com slash OCR Underground for some pretty big savings on their CBD products, as well as Handmaster Plus at handmasterplus.com. And don't forget, you can check out all the links that I've mentioned uh, in the show notes. Check out my book. Uh, check out the free grip course that I have out there. And uh, check it all out at the show notes at ocrunderground.com uh, slash episode dash 77. And until next time, keep training smarter.